Well, it's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, open to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the qualifications for deacons. Now, uh, the reason why we're doing this is um, I've just been convicted through the years uh, of serving in churches before I was on staff. And now that I've been on staff, that that the average uh, person in the average Baptist church really does not uh, understand fully uh, how important the office uh, of deacon is. Uh, nor what the qualifications are. It, uh, it typically, traditionally, has been more of a popularity contest. If a man is successful in business or if he's well-known, uh, then they put his name in for deacon. Is that normally the case? I mean, is, is, does that mean that man's qualified? Does that mean that? No, it doesn't. Okay, he could be. He could be. But So I, I have been compelled over the past few years uh, that uh, when deacon nomination time rolls around, that we hear from God's Word uh, what God's Word says about what the qualification of the office of deacon is. So the qualifications are, let me take that plural. So the reason why you've heard Acts chapter six a couple of times is uh, one of the first questions hopefully you ask is where, where does this office come from, okay? And, and we're Baptists, which means that everything we do is rooted where or from where? The word of God, exactly, in Christ. And so. We look to the scripture and we know the scripture outlines this office. And so as far as I'm concerned, uh, if you're going to be a church that is trying to be reflective of God's will and reflective of the scriptures, you have to have the office of deacon uh, in the church and the men that are ordained into that office need to be qualified according to scripture. And so you, you don't, there, there is, and the reason I say that is that there is a trend, there is a trend in modern day churches to, to, to not have deacons in churches. Raise your hand if you realize that, if you realize, okay. It, well, it's happening. It's been happening for probably, yeah, amen, probably about 20 years uh, it's been happening. And uh, I don't remember, I wanna say that perhaps Andy Stanley uh, was one of the first pastors that began to do away uh, with the office of deacon. That is no secret and I'm not bashing him. He actually wrote a book uh, that is published right now uh, talking about how they kind of did away with, with the office of deacon. Uh, so I, I don't share that opinion, amen? I mean, if it's in the word of God, uh, the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ need to honor it, uh, and that is why I have always believed in the office of deacon. Now, there are many that have gotten away from the office of deacon because there have been certain situations in church conflict where deacons have had to step up and lead because of failures in the office of pastor. And then there have been pastors that have had to maybe do some hard work in the deacon body because there have been men that have been put in there that are not qualified. And so the whole order, so to speak, in the pastor deacon model has kind of caught flack over the past 25 to 30 years. Well, I personally believe that that's because there, are un, there have been unqualified leaders put in both of those positions that have abused their authority. And, um, and so we're trying to change that. Can you amen that? Amen. We're trying to change that. Uh, I, I do something that's out of line. I want you as the church of Jesus Christ to come to me about it. I, I don't want you to just let me do anything I want to do. And, and I would never abuse this position and do just anything I wanted to do. I try to do things according to the word of God. And hopefully that is why you called me here to be your pastor is because I reflected that uh, in preaching and in my reputation for those that the committee talked to. So uh, that is why we do this. Uh, we want to go back to the text. We want to see why, why this happened and, and where it originated from. And that's where Acts chapter 6 comes in. And that's why you heard 
a message on that last week and why you heard Colton read that passage both Sundays is so you understand that is where this comes from. There was division in the early church over the, the Hellenistic or the uh, Greek widows not getting their food allotments, which caused a really big problem, okay? And so the, the apostles acted and they polled the congregation, they polled the church at that time and they asked for men full of the spirit and power and wisdom and they gave them several names and they ordained, they appointed, they anointed, they laid their hands on seven men uh, for that office, one of which was Stephen. And as we know in Acts chapter seven, what happened to him? He was killed, yes, he's the first Christian martyr and that's where we will end today if we, if we have enough time to go through all this. So, so here's where we are. We, we looked at the bylaws, and I'm not going to read all our bylaws again to you, but the reason why I read those last Sunday was to help you understand that our church cares about what the Bible says. That we are very, we're very careful to make certain that our bylaws reflect the Scripture. That's another one of the reasons why I came here was because I loved your bylaws. I thought they were, I thought they were very good and very biblical. Then after we did that, we looked at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and we went into that pretty deeply. And then we finished, we finished by reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Now, the qualifications in Timothy and Titus make us squirm a little bit. Can you amen that? They make us squirm a little bit. Because our culture has all but jettisoned morality in America. Can you amen that? Okay, but in this place and in this group of people, we don't jettison morality, amen? We don't. We champion it because the Bible champions it and because holiness demands it. Are we gonna be perfect? What? No, no, we're not gonna be perfect, exactly right. None of us is gonna be perfect. But we do need to do the very best we can in the power of the Holy Spirit and the accountability of the body of Christ to try to move our lives in a direction of, of maturity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we read this passage today, um, there's things in here that, histor that have historically uh, made us very uncomfortable to talk about. And believe it or not, that is a very good thing. It is good for the scripture to make you uncomfortable from time to time. That is called conviction. Can you amen that? It is good when you are convicted by the word of God because that means the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and mind and speaking to you and letting you know, hey, you know what? The word of God says this, I'm a professing believer. My life falls a little bit short of that, so maybe I need to pick up the pace in trying to be more obedient to that scripture. Can anybody relate to that in your own life? Can I get a witness? Okay, so, so, so understand that that this is a process and it's okay. You don't always come to church and then float out in a pillow of comfort, okay? You don't. You come here for admonishment, for correction, for grace, for mercy, to be built up into the head which is who? Christ. So th this process is not always comfortable and it's not always enjoyable. Sometimes it's downright painful. Now, I'm not preparing you for a painful message, amen. That's not what I'm doing, but I'm just saying. The word of God is described as a double-edged sword, dividing and cutting. 
And as my brother that is now in heaven, Adrian Rogers, used to say, which I love, he said that, that God and the word of God is a sword and it will either cut you to kill you or it will cut you to what? Heal you. That's the way you need to think about the word of God. It either cuts you and kills you or it cuts you and heals you. And what I hope in the ministry that God has called us to here, I hope that when the word of God cuts you, it cuts you to heal you and not kill you because that's what it has done to me and my wife our entire lives. We, we are not afraid to, to say that we, do, that we do not fulfill everything the scripture says. We are still a work in progress as everyone is, amen? Until God calls us home. So let us read beginning in verse eight. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So why, the first question that we wanna ask is, why does God put all this in the Bible? And he basically answers that question in that verse where he says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So if you have deacons, servants with good character, their reputation goes before them, and then the church is known in the community to have good deacons and therefore good what? A good witness in the community. If you have deacons that are not qualified, that do not, that do not reflect this passage, and do things that are ungodly on a regular basis in the community and develop a bad reputation in the community, what happens to the church's reputation in the community? It's bad. And then what happens is typically one of two things, either the church will die or the church will draw more people that have bad character because they know character at the church doesn't matter anymore. That's not the church we're building here, amen? That's not the church we're building here. How many of you want your children to grow up and have bad character? Raise your hand. Right, exactly. None of us want to see that. All of us want to see good character in those that we care about and love. And God wants the exact same thing for us as well. So let's look at this. Deacons, it says likewise. Another way you could say that is in the same way. Same way as what, you ask? What Paul said before about the qualifications of an overseer or pastor, it carries the idea that the office of overseer is, a very, is very important and here are the character qualities that are necessary for the position of overseer. Likewise, the office of deacon carries similar requirements. And the first one that is listed there is a term dignified. Dignified. Who's heard that term before in your life? Dignity or dignified. Yes, we all have. What that basically means is we should present ourselves in a way that inspires respect. 
that inspires respect. Having or showing a composed and serious manner that is worthy of respect. And this is the example that I use every time that I, that I preach on this topic because it happened to me one time. And, it, and it, I, I still see him in my mind, in my memory today. Have you ever been to a gas station, you know, running up and down the aisles trying to find the best deal on a watch McCallit or a, or a Mountain Dew? And you walk across the end cap and come face to face with about a six foot four tall state trooper. Have you ever had that happen? When that happens, I mean, what is the immediate like attitude that surfaces in your spirit when you see the shining badge, the stiff rim hat? Don't you love those hats they wear? I just love those hats. The uniform, the handcuffs, the pepper spray, amen. And the firearm especially. I mean, when you walk around the corner and you come face to face with one of those big brawny state troopers, what do you immediately think to yourselves? Do you stand up straight and think, did I pay that ticket? You know, I hope he doesn't run my license. You know, stuff like that. I mean, you immediately, it provokes in you a, a, a sense of respect, possibly borderline fear, you, you straighten up a little, you walk a little stiffer, you probably feel a little safer. It's, it's interesting, the law enforcement or the trooper's appearance and mannerisms provoke a response of respect. The law officer is dignified, he's dignified. The trooper is showing a composed or serious manner that is worthy of respect. I mean, have you ever known a state trooper when he pulls you over or a cop pulls you over that they walk up and they immediately start cracking jokes when they walk up to your window? No, I have, I've never known one to do that. Now, I have cracked jokes to try to soften them up, but they've never come up and cracked jokes when they walk up to my window. No, you may try to tell him one or two. He's serious and he wants you to be serious. And being a deacon, my friends brothers and sisters, is similar. It doesn't mean that we can't joke around and have fun. We, we do joke around and have fun. It means that a deacon needs to know when it is time to joke and when it is time to, be, to take things seriously, to look serious, to be serious. That's what it means to be dignified. I can remember recently, this past summer in May of this year, for the first time in many years, uh, there was a Rutherford County detective, Jacob Bew, who was killed in a motor vehicle accident. How many of you heard about Jacob's death, okay? Well, there's a man in this congregation today named Fred Delaney, and Fred, back uh, three years ago, approached me and asked me if I would pray about, think about being a volunteer chaplain for the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department. I didn't have to think about it a long time. Um, I just said, I know that there's some pretty extensive background checks involved in this, and let me just tell you about my past before you start running my numbers, okay? Now, I haven't lived that way in 30 years, but just want you to know, he says, it's not going to be a problem. And so, it wasn't a problem, and so I've been serving there, and we had to, um, our, our leader with the Sheriff's Department called us all up, let us know what was going on, and said, we need all of our chaplains to be at Franklin Road Baptist Church for the funeral for the deputy that was killed in this car accident. And please, don't wear shorts and a t-shirt, amen? Dress nice. A suit and tie, at a bare minimum, a coat and tie. Be there early 
find us and sit with us in the sanctuary of Franklin Road Baptist Church. And what did I say? Yes, Sergeant, that's what I said. So I did exactly what he asked. I, I got a coat and tie out, I got my, I got, excuse me, I got my suit out and I got dressed and I got there on time. And I'm telling you, I'm 53 years old and I know I'm not ancient, so th those of you that are older, oh, it's nothing. I, I, I know that I'm not that old yet, okay? I get that all the time. But I, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, can you amen that? I'm 53, okay. So I, I go up in there and, and I, I've served in multiple capacities, Dallas, uh, Columbus, Mississippi, around, around Air Force people. I have never in my life, never, never seen the honor that those law enforcement people showed that fallen detective. I have never seen anything like it before in my life. Hundreds, hundreds, literally hundreds, maybe even a thousand, I don't know. The entire church was filled up the honor guard came out. There were several testimonies that were given to four or five speakers. And then the processional to the, to the, to the graveside was just incredible. That, that's dignity. That's being dignified. That's respect. Knowing when it's time to be light and fun, but also knowing when it's time to be what? Deadly serious, deadly serious. That is dignified. You know, from, from time, one little more point, then we'll move on. From time to time, I, I get into weird arguments with people about how to dress for church. Have y'all ever experienced that? Just these weird, or I, I don't go out looking for it. I, I don't pick fights with people about what you wear to church. I don't do that. But for some reason, there's this angst that just floats out there about, dressing for church you know and and i have always believed that you should dress nice for church okay my grandmother raised me up to wear a coat and tie to church this is your god you you respect him you love him you obey him and and you wear the best you have for him but this one guy he just kept this and this was years ago in, in my in my home city greenville mississippi me and this guy I was trying to witness to him and I'd pick him up from time to time, we'd talk, and he, uh, he, he, thought, he thought he was an Indian. He claimed, like, lineage back to the Cherokee Indians, and, and it, it was this, just a really, and I have nothing against Indians, I mean, nothing against it. I'm just telling you the matter of the story. But he kept going, you know, it, it doesn't matter. All those hypocrites, you know, make you dress up for church. He would say, God, God doesn't care what I wear to church. And this just kept on in my mind, and one day I had heard all I could stand, amen? You ever been there? Heard all you could stand. Heard it all. And so I asked him this question. I said, well, let me ask you this, Mark. That was his name. Not Mark Cantrell. He, I didn't even know him back then, so I didn't even think it wasn't him. I said, so when you go out with a woman you're interested in dating, do you take a shower, brush your teeth, comb your hair, and pick out something a little nicer to impress? And guess what he said? Oh, yeah. And I said, so let me ask you one question. Which is more important, your girlfriend or God? Silence. Because he knew the answer. Be dignified, brothers and sisters. Deacons need to be dignified, but all Christians need to be dignified. Be 
dignified. Deacons are to be dignified in their presentation of themselves to inspire respect in the way they speak and the way they look. Let's move on to the next one. Not double-tongued. In the Greek, it's delogos, and it basically means double-talk. Who's heard that term before, double-talk? He's a double-talker. She's a double-talker, okay? Another way to say this is talking out of both sides of the mouth. And technically, what is that called? Lying. Thank you. Yes, lying. It's, you're being insincere. When you were asked a question, the answer should be the same no matter who you're talking to. You should tell the truth. Don't tell one person one thing and tell another person something else. Jesus said to let your what be what? Your yes be yes and your what? Your no be no. You shouldn't have to swear by higher power. You are Christians. You follow the God of the universe. Therefore, you should be a walking testimony to the what? Truth. Yes. Everything you say should be true. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Webster, I looked this up just because I always like to look up what Webster says. Webster said that being double-tongued is marked by deliberate deceptiveness, especially by pretending one set of feelings and acting under the influence of another. So this is how I would say this plays out in normal life. If you disagree with something, don't act like you agree with it publicly and then later dissent against it privately, or worse, pick up the what? Phone and call everybody you know and tell them how you disagreed with it. Oh, well, I was, when I was there, I said yes, but once I got home in the privacy of my own home, away from everybody else, I picked up the telephone and called everybody and told them what I really thought about it. That is being double-tongued. And do you know whose work you're doing when you do that? Satan's. Just to let you know if you were wondering. God's not into that. God's into truth completely. Being double-tongued, and I'll be honest, is one of the things that was very difficult for me to conquer personally. To be willing to speak up right then and there. Know what I mean? Room full of people, 15, 20 people, five, six, it don't matter, family members, friends, business, whoever it is, to speak up something is said and you disagree with it and it hits you wrong and instead of just being silent or doing a no vote, speak your mind in a loving, gently, gentle fashion always seeking to try to understand the opposition side, but don't sit there and say nothing. Most people say, well, I don't want to disagree. I don't want to sow discord. Disagreeing is not, nece- is not necessarily sowing discord. You can disagree and not sow discord. Do y'all understand that? You can do that. You can disagree lovingly, amicably, and not sow discord. It is completely possible. My wife and I do it all the time, amen? <laughs> all the time, all the time. Don't be double-tongued. I mean, I can remember the times when I struggled with that through my life. 
And one of the reasons how I think God cured me of that was, was that I would acquiesce in public and then later I would be, I would just be deeply convicted about it. And it literally made me sick. It made me sick. I lost sleep. I didn't understand why I had this trouble in exerting my opinion or my point of view because I was afraid I was gonna hurt somebody's feelings or just to be polite. I mean, Christians have to tell the truth and we have to do it lovingly and gently. What did Paul say? Truth in what? Love, truth in love. So we have to be, we have to speak our mind. We cannot be double-tongued. And, and as we studied the peacemaker ministry back two years ago, I believe it was about now, you can either be a peacemaker, a peace faker, or a peace breaker. Did y'all hear that? You can be a peacemaker, it all rhymes. So we, we, sh we should get it, right? Holy, 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 you know, the threes. Peacemaker, peace faker, or a peace breaker. And if you're double-tongued, you are not a peacemaker. You could be a peace faker or a peace breaker. And that's not where you want to be as a Christian. And it's certainly not where you want to be as a Christian leader who is responsible for shepherding the souls of other people. It's, it's a recipe for disaster, complete disaster. And I'm going to tell you what, it, it will also personally in your own life, if you carry that with you into the business world or no matter what you are, what you practice, if you practice that, Wherever you go, it will come back to haunt you. Eventually, it will come back and haunt you. So don't, no, do not be double-tongued. Okay, the next one. The, 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 now we're really getting into your favorite ones. Okay, these will be your favorite ones. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. So church leaders cannot be enslaved or drunk on mind-altering drugs, I include alcohol in that. Our contemporary culture today, I would possibly argue that there are more people enslaved by prescription drugs than alcohol ever had a chance. Then you mix the two and it's even worse, okay? So not being enslaved or drunk on mind-altering drugs or Money. So I just said I believe the proper application should go beyond wine and other forms of alcohol to pharmaceutical drug use and other forms of drugs. Alcohol consumption and abuse. Now you're, you're looking at a recovered alcoholic up here, a, a, a redeemed man, redeemed from that, from that debaucherous enslavement. And I've seen it up close. Alcohol consumption and abuse can be so dangerous and life-threatening to society that our government has to regulate its use in a variety of ways. And one of the things I'm asked the most, other than what to wear to church, amen, is alcohol consumption. Okay? They will ask, does the Bible say, thou shalt not drink? And let me tell you this, I wish to the heavenly Father above, the answer to that question was what? But it's no. I don't like it any more than you do. Just let that settle in your heart for a minute. The Bible nowhere says, thou shalt not drink. And I hate it as much as many of you do. Amen? In fact, I've often wondered if we could do an addendum to Timothy. Amen? But that's not going to happen. 
They will ask that question, and the answer is no, but it does warn regularly about strong drink, and it rails, and when I say rails, it rails against intoxication, drunkenness, rails against it. It is not okay to get drunk at all, ever. Clearly a sin, the Bible is crystal clear about that, crystal clear. And I I have said from the time God called me to preach that I was not gonna be a Pharisee, I was not gonna say things that the Bible didn't say. I can't. It's not my word to manipulate. It's not. So why is alcohol consumption and other forms of drug use such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Why, from the moment I was a young man, why my grandmother, I mean, my goodness gracious, if she railed against alcohol, I mean, she hated it. I mean, she hated it. And then when I got older, I completely understood why, amen? When I knew the truth about a lot of things, then I understood why she hated it. Some folks can. Some folks can use it, and it doesn't do a thing. Other folks do. They wind up in jail. They wind up divorced. Their family is broken, or worse, they kill themselves or kill somebody in an alcohol-related car wreck. That's why it's such a big deal Because these things, prescription drugs and alcohol and all these other things contain mood-altering substances that easily become addictive. Have you ever seen somebody drunk before? Have you? I mean, now you got YouTube. You can go go pull up any drunk person you want to anywhere on planet Earth and get a video of them getting in fights if you want to. I don't recommend you do that at all. But, but that's how pronounced it is. It's, it's everywhere. You can see that anywhere. You can see them and see what it does. And it is a scary sight. Your mind can become twisted toward the drug. You get high and then you come down. Your attitude and personality can be changed by it over time. You lose your ability to be what the Bible calls sober-minded about things. You can develop delusional paranoia and other forms of mental instability and depression, which can lead to more and more drug use. And as we have seen, in our country multiple times it can go all the way to people do what kill themselves of which I have had numerous friends in my life that happened to and probably had God not saved me probably would have happened to me as well so a deacon should not be mastered that's what that's what the Bible said should not be mastered by any any We harp and harp and harp and harp on alcohol, but it's any mood-altering substance, any mood-altering substance at all. Not greedy for dishonest gain. A deacon cannot be drunk on money either. He cannot be a dishonest businessman. He can't be an embezzler. His God cannot be the dollar. He cannot love money. He can't be eager for money. It's not, it can't be something that consumes his mind. Money is not his God. He doesn't consider every person as an opportunity to sell something for his own gain. His treasure is where? Heaven not on earth. So he would sacrifice money for a good name rather than have piles of money and ruin his name. He must be fair and ethical. Honest ethical gain is good. Greed and dishonest gain disqualifies one from being a deacon or a pastor for that matter. 
not greedy for dishonest gain. And my goodness, I mean, that, that would be a virtue in, in pagan society, would it not? To, to many it would be, there are some that don't care, but I've come across unbelievers that, that see that as a vice and don't pursue that. Or at least with the wealth they have, they are very charitable and helping others with, with, with their riches. All right, let's move on. Running out of time here. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A deacon has to be somewhat of a solid theologian in the sense that he understands the basics of the faith, the primary tenets as they are called. He must hold to the mystery of the faith, which means, and this is, this is, this is very important, things that he doesn't completely understand, he's got to just take them upon faith. And if people believe certain minute things different than them, he can't lash out at them and try to destroy them. That's very important. Because there are lots of different minutia things that, that, that we struggle with in the church that the Bible teaches. And it doesn't mean that they are an inferior believer or a heretic or, or, or in gross error. It just means they struggle with a particular theological belief. And that's okay. Because we all do. All of us do. But he's got to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Does he believe the Trinity? Does he believe the virgin birth? Does he believe in the substitutionary atonement? Does he believe the word of God is inerrant and true? Does he believe marriage is between one man and one woman? Whoever thought that'd be a battlefield? Whoever thought that'd be a battlefield? Does he believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and will one day return? Does he believe that sometimes, and this is a big one here, you might not think so, but to me it is. Does, does he believe that sometimes faithful, serving, godly people go through unexplained suffering? You can't get mad at God just because somebody that you think is a great person goes through suffering. There are reasons that God puts us through suffering. Does he honor and respect the authority of the ordained staff or does he dissent against them regularly? Is he serious about the things of God? Does he have a clear conscience about these things or is he always conflicted in his mind, always worried he doesn't understand something right, constantly wanting to debate theology and show everybody he's right? That's called pride, that's not humility. I mean, if you have a problem with something in the scripture and it bothers you every time it's talked about to the point that you, you lose sleep over it, or you have to constantly push your point of view, you probably don't have a clear conscience about it. The one that I have, that I have battled with with people my entire existence as a preacher is election and free will. I mean, man, people just get obsessed with that and they can't turn it loose. It drives me crazy. The Bible teaches both. Get over it. Just get over it. Get over it. Let God be God, you be you. Share, share the gospel and let him save them and you walk with them in discipleship. I mean, I'm telling you, I, you just, you don't understand. All the way through seminary, after graduation, friends, we've dealt with people all over the place. Man, they want to get together in a room and argue and fight and fuss and pull this scripture and pull that scripture. And I'm just going, why don't we just go out and do ministry and not fight about all this? It wears me down. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't like, you know, like there are reasons to, to, to fight over theology. The, 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 the divinity of Jesus, I, I will, 
I will wrestle anybody in this place right now over that, over that doctrine. Any takers? But, but we're never going to understand predestination. We're never going to understand that. You accept it on faith. You're never really truly going to understand how all that operates in free will. You take it on faith. One of the things that drove me crazy was when all the, the, the Calvinist stuff broke out 10, 20 years ago, me and a guy were talking, I said, so let me get this straight. So we are about, so the convention is possibly about to split over whether regeneration comes before faith or faith comes before regeneration? Are, are, are you serious? Do we really know that? Is there a way to know that? You know what? Hey, I'm going to settle this argument right now. I'm going to say they both happen at the same time. Amen? <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. Let's move on. Let's move on. Must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested first. And then if they, and then if they, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve. They have to be tested in two perspectives. One is doctrinally. One is relationally. The deacon, that's what, and we do that in ordination council. That's what we do. We, we have all the, 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 the deacons that want to come. They come. Uh, tip, there, are, there are some churches that invite anybody that wants to come from Southern Baptist churches, preachers or deacons from other churches. And it's just a gentle time of examination. Are, are we sure this man understands what he believes enough theologically to, to, to see the church through some type of, of, of combative issue that might happen? Just because somebody in Nashville says something, is that going to send shockwaves through them in the church? And the answer to that has to be no. It has to be no. So doctrinally, relationally, I mean, let, let's watch this guy. I mean, I mean, those of us that have children, do you kind of want to know the person that your child is about to marry? You kind of want to know them longer than a couple weeks? My goodness, you need to say, amen! You kind of want to know them for a few months? How about maybe a year or two? Would that even be better? Because, I mean, I was out there for 26 years before I got saved. For 26 years, I pretended to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. 26 years. You, you better believe you better believe there needs to be a time of testing. We're going, we're going to turn these servants loose and they're going to have the most intimate knowledge over some of the darkest, deepest struggles that some of our people have in the church. And what are they going to do with that information? What are they going to do if, if there's a woman that's struggling in her marriage? Is, is he going to know that he doesn't need to be talking to that woman on his own, that maybe his wife should be talking to her and not him? Does he know this? So let's, let's, let's test this guy for a year. Let, let's see how his marriage is. Let's see. Well, that's judging, preacher. You're doggone right, it's judging. I want to know who this man is before I turn him loose with the flock of Jesus Christ. That's not wrong. I'm sorry, I'm just going crazy today. I just, you just have to just... Angie is going to be worried to death. Deacon's wives. <clears throat> Ladies, I'm going to go easy on y'all today. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> Dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Give it, up, give it up for the ladies. All right, that's it. 
Now, the final thing, and I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to hit this as good as I can. This is where, this is where the Scripture really, really meddles, okay? I mean, if you, if you don't believe the Scripture is a double-edged sword, here it is. Husband of one wife, you normally hear a pin drop when you read that in the church, and manage their children in household well. What does this mean? This means that a deacon's family life must be solid because the way he does that is a huge indicator of his spiritual life. Can you amen that? Huge indicator. So to me, it's been amazing the resistance that this passage has received. It's almost a joke in some circles. Oh yeah, the husband of one wife, whatever. This is God's word. It's not a joke. It's not to be taken lightly, but so many Christian families have collapsed that the teaching has almost become ignored and outright mocked. People constantly complain about our nation and want to see our nation return to its core Christian values. I would say, let's start with the church. How do we treat marriage in the church? The stats, and they don't lie, say that we are no different than the fallen world in which we have been called to minister. So, I would say, let's stop blaming those people for the moral collapse of our nation, and let's look in the mirror. Amen? Yeah. Why would God make this qualification for church leadership? Our leaders must have homes built on the gospel. We will not be able to win the world to Christ if our leadership has wrecked homes and wrecked marriages. Now, we can't take this too far, because that, that's what we do. We take it too far. No one is looking for perfection, because I can promise you they ain't perfection right here, amen? There's not perfection. We are looking for faithfulness and humility and a desire and willingness to allow the scripture to speak to our hearts. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for. Husband of one wife has always been interpreted in two extremes. Two extremes. One is that the man can be married one time and only one time, even if his wife dies, he can never be married again. Who agrees with that position? Nobody. That's not true. Even Paul says if the man's wife dies, he can remarry because he's free from the law. The other extreme is that this passage is specifically condemning the act of polygamy. I believe that's in there, but I believe there's more to it than that. So, pastor, where have you come to in all of your theological experience and all of your reading and all of that? Well, I will tell you that the correct interpretation is somewhere between those two extremes, somewhere between them. It's definitely not this one, and it's definitely not this one. It's somewhere in the middle. And so where I fall is, is that each and every man has to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. And no, that's not political spinning. That's the truth. I do not know the background and the struggles and the narrative of every human soul that is in this church there's enough pain and suffering that we have experienced ourselves and through our own families and that we have seen others struggle. 
And so what I'm saying to you is, is when, is when those situations come to me and a man has, has been divorced and remarried, I take that situation very seriously and I look at it very intimately and I take them case by case and then make a decision. Let me tell you why I do that. Back many years ago, I went to a church and I was green as a sapling, amen? Green as a sapling. The chairman of deacons that year, and I did not know this until I got there, had been married not once, not twice, not three times, not four times. Fifth marriage, the chairman of deacons. What killed me was the way he explained it to me. God used all those marriages to lead me to who he really wanted me to have. <laughs> Folks, was that man qualified to be a deacon? In my heart, now this is where I tell you I struggle with speaking my mind, you know? Well, I told you that in the very beginning, not being double-tongued. That was one of those times. And I got home, and Angie and I talked about it. And I said, you know, I wonder if all those women feel that way. I guarantee you they didn't. And I guarantee you another one that didn't. God didn't. That's why I say, case-by-case case basis. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. The Word of God is perfect. And I am seeking to understand this, and I am trying to find His will, and I take each man that has been nominated for this position seriously. I ask them hard questions. I want to know about their life. And you will find out very quickly where their heart is, when you do that, and then you will know, are they qualified or are they not qualified? Amen? Amen. Y'all okay? Yeah. Everybody okay? Okay. Finally, managing their children and household well, this, it gets worse. Amen? <laughs> so the main thing you are examining here is the character of the man. It is impossible to hide the character of the man because where does it come out? The Proverbs is full of it. It comes out in your kids. Your character, who you are, comes out in your children, okay? So it is impossible to hide that. So what do his children think about him, right? I got three children in this congregation and one back there in children's worship, and I'm hoping they don't shout anything out in the congregation, right? <laughs> what do his children think about him? Do, does, does he have a relationship with them? Has he been a good father to them? If he has not and does not, chances are he will not be a faithful, good deacon. You can't, you can't serve and oversee people you only see three, time, three hours a week if you can't take care of the folks that live in your own house. You follow what I'm saying? So how does he treat that relationship? How does he do that? Or the reverse may be true. He may abandon his family for the office of deacon, and you certainly don't want that either. Bottom line, bottom line, if the man is married and has a family, is his family built on the gospel, 
Is his family managed well according to the gospel? And if his children have become grown and they have drifted away from the gospel? Boy, that, that's a tough question. There's a lot of debate over that, okay? If the family drift away from the gospel, do, here, here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. Does he still pray for them? Does he still love them? Does he still evangelize him? Has he allowed their wandering to cause him to wander? You follow what I'm saying? We as parents, no matter what happens with our kids, we have got to stand firm on the gospel. Amen? Period. I hear so many times young families will say, well, we're coming back because we have kids now. We have kids now. We want our children to be raised up in church. I'm like, well, what happens when the kids are gone? You just going to leave? I mean, you don't think that they're going to see that and watch you? I've often thought about the drop-off culture, parents that just go and drop their kids off at church and go somewhere else. And I'm like, you do realize that they're watching that, right? They're watching you do that. So, so what they see is you dropping them off and then you going to do what you really want to do. Since you don't really want to be at church, you're saying it's important for them, but you don't go. Guess what they're going to do in 15 to 20 years when they have kids? Guess what they're going to do? Most likely, there are exceptions, but most likely the exact same thing. Manage your household well. Keep a faithful God. No, no matter how bad it got, no matter how horrible it was in the past, I mean, today you maintain a faithful gospel witness for your kids. Regardless, you do that, you got my vote, amen? You got my vote. None of us are perfect, and we can't control what our kids do once they're grown and they leave. We, you can't. You, legally, you can't. Maybe, maybe you could, you know, have some kind of ri something written into your will. You know, if you don't follow Jesus, I'll cut you out of the will. I thought about doing that, actually. I thought about doing that, but I hadn't done it yet. And I won't do that. I'm just kidding. But, but, you, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, you're, you're just because you know, you know where they need to be. Amen? You know that. So as a godly man, you tow the line and you never stop, ever, until your dying breath. That's the type of deacons this country and the world needs. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your power, for your forgiveness, for making it so clear, your will. Lord, I know there are areas in this Bible that just, oh Lord, they're just, they're so hard to, 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 to hear sometimes. But Lord, that's where the richness of your glory is. In, the, in those difficult passages, Lord, that cut us to the heart, that, that, just, that just stay in our minds and on our shoulders every day, just reminding us and reminding us our responsibilities to those that you have entrusted into our care. And so, Father, I pray that you would keep the conviction going. I pray that you would, that you would keep the, the, the love in our hearts and the desire to obey your word, the desire to serve you alive. And especially as we come into this new year, Lord, that, that you would raise up, that you would raise up these additional deacons that we so desperately need to help us oversee the care of our families in this church, to help those struggling with things that are just beyond, beyond many of our, our ability to understand. 
And so, Father, and I thank you so much, as Colton rightly said last week, that he was so thankful for the deacons we have now, the way they have stood beside us, the way they have walked with us, Lord, the way they have helped us. We are so thankful for the men that are serving and continue to serve. And Lord, if there is one here today that does not know you, and through, through this passage on deacon qualifications, they have sensed conviction that they need to come to repentance and faith and to receive Jesus Christ in their life and renovate their family and renovate their life. I pray that you would bring them forward or that they would pray to receive you in the, in the privacy and the silence of their own seat. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.